0: This is Growth Masters, the show for CEOs, CMOs, and anyone wanting to keep up with what's new in the world of business, marketing, and tech. You're in conversation with Robert Tadros. Hello and welcome to the Growth Masters podcast. I'm your host, Robert Tadros. Joining me on the show today is Lacinta Hartley who is a globally recognized urban strategist and serial entrepreneur. Lucinda's work over the past decade has focused on leading innovation strategies to improving the social life of cities now implemented in more than 10 countries around the globe. She is best known as the co-founder of urban tech company Neighborlytics. Her work has been featured by Google, Smart Company, Qantas, the UN Habitat and much, much more. She was named as one of Australia's top 100 most influential women by the Australian Financial Review and one of Melbourne's top 100 most influential people by the age. Lucinda, welcome to the show. Lucinda, welcome kick us off. I'd love to learn more about yourself and uh, and how you found yourself, where you are today, (laughs) co-finding Naval Yeah,
1: thanks very much, Rob. It's, um, It's nice to chat this morning. And uh, the story of Nobolytics is, is, is quite a long and winding road, which I think is, is the story of many entrepreneurs. It, this is not my first business, but it is my first tech venture. And uh, the, the core problem I've been looking at solving, you know, I say this retrospectively, but the, the core problem that I can see that I've been trying to solve throughout my career in various different hats is the fact that everyone is trying to create places for people. When you work in city making, I'm an urban designer and you're making decisions about infrastructure and planning. Ultimately, those are about creating communities and places for people. It's very hard to do that if you don't actually understand people, whether that's from a data perspective or a community engagement perspective. And so if I look at the different things that I've been trying to work on, it's about how do we actually make places better? for people and communities. So I I began my career in urban design. I love the challenge of bringing together many, many different types of questions together around neighborhood planning. And I've been fascinated by communities and planning since an early age. But one of the challenges that I found with urban design is Um, the reality of at least being a graduate in that job is, is often spending many, many hours on AutoCAD, moving like concrete specifications around on a page. And it's very important that we get the concrete specifications, right. But I, I found that that, particular kind of detailed work didn't suit me very well I was more interested in the systems and the in the human side of cities and so I I left that and um, did what like at the time lots of millennials would do is quit my day job and move to Southeast Asia and I started working with the United Nations on informal settlement and slum upgrading and resettlements a totally different sort of city planning looking at informal settlements rather than very planned communities and I learned a huge amount from that experience around how to go about more collaborative and participatory development practices. And so coming back to Australia after that experience, I was really curious to see how we could adopt some of those methods around participation and collaboration into our very rigid planning and policy scheme in Australia. And so started a... um, consultancy called Co Design Studio, which later grew to be one of Australia's largest placemaking consultancies that really helped property developers and governments engage better with communities around neighborhood improvement projects such as community gardens and parks and community centers and other places like that. And we learned a lot of lessons there around collaboration. But again, one of the challenges across all of those, whether it was really big consulting, United Nations, grassroots communities, is we didn't actually have any data or information about people and so again where while we were working on these projects it was very difficult to uh, understand the value that we were creating or understand the behavior and lifestyle and experience of places and that's really what uh, led my business partner jessica and i to to neighborlytics that you know if you want to understand the behavior of a place your traditional tools are pretty limited you can look at the census but it's five years old you can try and do it manually through surveys or standing on street corners and i've personally Stood on many street corners and many hours of my life that I will never get back like watching people and trying to understand how places work. It's just inherently not scalable and most projects don't want to do it, even if the information is useful. And so we asked the question of whether we could tap into the, the millions of digital footprints that we leave behind every day not so much the personal data but the interactions that we make with our built environment the photos we take the ratings and reviews that we leave behind the business and community pages the opening hours there are billions of data points that tell us about what's actually going on in neighborhoods the everyday activity that goes on and so we've created neighborlytics which is a digital platform that taps into that rich lifestyle and behavioral data to provide real-time measurement of what we call urban life, and at the moment we're working with sixty plus of the world's leading city makers um, to provide these data snapshots about neighbourhoods to help them inform their um, development planning and budget decisions.
0: Wow. Okay. So my my mind just went just exploded, right? And <laughs> I'm, I'm actually um, I'm an architect turned marketer. So I can, yeah I can right. To, to 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 a lot of what you're saying right. You got you
1: got out of architecture. How how did you do that?
0: <laughs> oh, look, I finished. Tried to get a job. I got offered forty grand, and I thought, really, that's all I'm worth after seven years.
1: Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. it's a, it's a passion job, that's for sure.
0: Correct. So I, you know, I've always had a bit of a passion for for tech and marketing and and just sales and. Um, kind of fell into it, to be honest. And next thing I know, I was, um, yeah, here I am, leading an agency of you know, 70 people. So it's taken 15 or 16 years to get to where I am. But I, I think I've still got a bit of a, a soft spot for, for architecture. i like to, you know, to to double here and there with, with CAD. But, yeah, I think my passion now has really been marketing. That's just where I love influencing behavior. That's really mm-hmm. what I you know what I'm, what I'm truly passionate about. So back on the platform. So this is real time. This is live data yeah the data
1: is available live we actually don't report it live just because the volumes are so huge and the price points so high but we take a snapshot in time uh that gives an up to the minute or up to date picture of what's going on i think traditionally when we're trying to understand you know the social life of neighborhoods we look at five-year-old census data and you know we've just had a global pandemic we know that behavior and lifestyle have changed so much you know is data from 2016 really the right data set to be looking at so we look at recent um on-demand data even though it is it does exist in real time we don't report it in real time
0: interesting point right have you seen a big shift over the last sort of 12 months
1: yeah absolutely and this is the thing that i think is fascinating because the physical environment hasn't changed right i mean the buildings and streets parks they're all still there but the way that we use them has changed dramatically and is likely mm-hmm. to have ongoing shifts. So, we actually created a report last year called the New Local, which compared Melbourne, Brisbane, and Sydney at different time points throughout the year, looking at the behaviour and lifestyle responses to different lockdowns. And that was fascinating to see that uh, the, the ways that communities adopted different lifestyle behaviours. In Melbourne, there was like a 238, I think it was percent increase in use and engagement with parks and public spaces. And, and if you're from Melbourne, that's not surprising because it's the only place you're allowed to go um, where there was an uptick in, in use of public space in Brisbane and Sydney, but not as pronounced as in Melbourne. Uh, similarly, at, you know, it confirmed and validated a lot of the things that we would expect like outdoor dining Uh, and dining in general went down and takeaway home cooking (laughs) went up. Uh, And so one of the things that's, I think, really useful when you quantify these trends, because anecdotally, we all have an experience of that, but we can see that at a local neighbourhood scale, the patterns are actually quite varied. And so if we're looking to make decisions about property or planning and investment it's really important to understand that COVID has affected the city asymmetrically and CBDs and activity centers and suburbs and greenfield developments are all affected very
0: differently. Yeah and we're seeing I mean I I was in the city probably a couple of weeks ago and it was an absolute ghost town. Yeah. Uh, So and and I I guess I'm predicting that that will probably continue even when you know COVID becomes a thing of the past. I, I guess my own personal sort of assumption is that you know the local areas are going to start to become a lot busier and your yeah. traditional, you know, let's go to the city and you know, hang out or, or whatever it may be, right? Yeah. Um, and I know there's been talks and you know, it's been going on for quite a while where I think we're going to start to see hubs start to, to emerge. okay? Yeah. Uh, or like little mini cities within, yeah. the, within the core city. So is there much happening in that space at the moment? I mean, and and, and how does, I guess, the data points I guess, that you have or that you collate, How does it impact that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the the objective of having like a polycentric city has been on the agenda for a long time, even since pre-COVID. I mean, Sydney talks about having a three city center and and plan Melbourne, which is a sort of long-term forecast. So Melbourne identifies a number of key activity centers out of the city. And I guess at the time that that plan was made now, now probably 10 years ago, it was trying to unlock the congestion of the city and various things like that. But now we need it for different purposes that people are living more locally. Uh, The two trends that we've observed from a data perspective are is one is that people are more locally connected. Uh, They're they're spending time in local areas and that's what we've all experienced. It does mean that those local activity centers, local high streets, local main streets have the opportunity for a real renaissance. So many of them were actually on the decline previously. But the other trend that we've noticed is that people are more digitally engaged. And this is why we call it the new local. So it's not like a return to localism as we might've expected, you know, 40, 50 years ago, people lived in suburbs more, spent time more there. It's not that we're seeing that people are spending time more locally, but they're also interacting digitally. And it doesn't just mean that we're working from home. It's mean that we've now got capacity to access like government services online. You know, it's much more likely that you might participate a conference and event digitally. You're doing click and collects from your dry cleaner or your library. Uh, All of these things have been through a big, digital transformation. And that actually lays a platform for a completely different way of living that I think we haven't quite explored yet. And that's one of the trends that I'm quite excited about. And at Navalytics, we've noticed that just in basic data volumes. So we've seen sort of, you know, during some of the lockdowns, a 60 to 70% increase in the in the data volume creation in the suburbs compared to a 20 to 30% decrease in CBD areas, which would which would confirm a lot of our experiences.
0: And the, the other thing as well that I, I mean, I'm sure we've all noticed that there's a lot of Melburnians that have left Melbourne to, to Queensland. Yep. You know, during Tasmania. COVID was, yeah, Tasmania, <laughs> yeah. It was huge, right? It was like 400 families a month or something that were leaving. Do you think that that's, is it skewing the data or is it like, I guess, is it complementing it or is it really throwing a massive spanner in the works? And I guess the reason why I'm asking this question is the way we behave here in Melbourne, I'm sure is very different to yeah. the Queenslanders, right? So you move the segment of people that are used <laughs> to, you know, particular way of living here into a completely different city. So yeah. I'm just thinking out loud. I'm wondering if that makes a, 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 a huge impact on... Yeah. Uh, you know, on some I of these mean, cities. likely
1: it would. I mean, the reality of cities is that they're not static. Like, we like to think of them as very fixed places, but the reality is that it's constant coming and going and they're always yeah. very dynamic. Uh, but we've just seen a like a more exaggerated shift there. So I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure the other than anecdotally the the answer to the question that you've just asked. But I suspect that if there was a significant enough portion of people from Victoria moving to Queensland, they'd probably have better coffee if that, if that was the case. That's, that's true. <laughs> that might true. be one <laughs> influence. But yeah, I would think it would be that depend on the proportion of um, people and change. And yeah, a small amount would probably be. Less noticeable, when a large shift might might show up yeah. as a different lifestyle characteristics.
0: Yeah, interesting to see what happens over the next couple of years as well. No doubt. Listen, let's shift gears a bit. So you mentioned this is not your first business, right? So you've been in business for, for quite a while. Talk me through the journey, right? I mean, how did you even how did you even start your first business? You know, did you kind of fall into it? Was it? Yeah. You know,
1: or, yeah. Uh, no, it was quite intentional the first time, but it was it wasn't really like I. Had this big desire to be an entrepreneur, or I thought of myself as very entrepreneurial. In fact, at the time I didn't, and I was never interested in starting my own business because it seemed that if you did that, as well as doing your job, you had to do all of the admin and management as well, and that looked really boring. So uh, I wasn't interested. (laughs) Uh, When I first came back from Southeast Asia, when I was working with the UN, I I did fall into a a, a CEO role for a small, not not for profit, Um, and that was a, a dramatic shift having been sort of a graduate to to then um, being a CEO at 26 and trying to work out what that meant and I I learned the wrong way, the hard way, uh, a lot of lessons there. It was a very small organization, but I had a very big vision for it. And um, there were a lot of things about its structure and funding that were very, very challenging and perhaps at the time didn't really have the maturity to to bring that forward. So I ended up leaving that. Um, that felt like a too big a challenge to solve. And I really wanted to look at, really bed down into some of these um, participatory practices. And I, I would actually have preferred it to do do that work inside another company but I just couldn't find anyone doing the work and I was really passionate about solving that problem. I could see that you know in Australia loneliness is as likely to kill you as smoking and heart disease and we're planning cities and communities that didn't seem to be fostering that heartbeat and local life in a way that I thought that we could do with kind of the resources and skills that we had and so because I couldn't see that elsewhere I ended up starting a consultancy that would start to tackle that and Again, it was I was very young and naive as I think you have to be because otherwise why would you bother because it's actually really hard. And if you knew how hard it would be, you probably wouldn't do it. Uh, but I was really initially driven by kind of this vision and passion which lots of entrepreneurs are and have had to work hard, I think, to fill in a lot of the other skills around team management and growth and funding. So, yeah, certainly learned on the job how to do a lot of the other strategy, planning, team management, business development, sales, everything that you have to do in this first seat. And then then working out how you progressively delegate those to others over time and elevate um, your position to be more uh, across the vision and strategy. And so I guess coming into Neighborlytics had had seven or eight years in a CEO role of, of kind of learning a lot of hard lessons and certainly have a lot of business knowledge to bring to this, but Neighborlytics is in tech and So then it's just a totally different sector that has different rules and standards and it's a different business model, like we're a venture-backed startup as opposed to, you know, a consultancy, different business model, different type of team. And so I'm really excited by the the challenge of working in an opportunity working in tech because we already have projects in 12 countries. We're working very globally and that just wasn't possible in our previous business model. I can see the scaling opportunity, but it also does mean, yeah, the need to really evolve my, my business partner and I both our skill sets all the time because we're, we're working in a sector that's definitely a long way from urban design which is where we began.
0: Yeah absolutely look in the tech space there's no doubt about it it's so congested right there's a lot going on every day there's a new platform or a new piece of technology that's that's starting to emerge and uh, I guess the, the question here is are you finding that I can't imagine you would have a lot of competitors right in the space?
1: Mm. No we don't have competitors you I mean you like as in there are some emerging because I think we've been quite evangelist the last few years of yeah. telling everyone why they should do this. And, you know, if you do that enough, you create a market demand that someone else will fill as well. So some are emerging, but It's it's not... It's not that um, we have direct competitors in that sense, but you always compete. And so the, the sort of incumbent way to solve this problem would be with a, with a consultant who might come in and make observations no. and advise on what to do. Or there are other data platforms, but they typically focus on, say, physical information like land use data rather than the behavioural lifestyle data. So it is still a competitive space, but we don't have others who are like direct competitors right now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well I guess the second leg the question is like how do you keep you know like innovating and really getting the brand to a level where it's like, you know, as you said, I mean you you are driving the space, right? You've almost created uh, you've you've created the vertical, right? And, yeah. you, and you're leading you're leading the vertical. So how do you how do you guys like whether it's yourself and the co-founder really keep at the forefront of innovation? Um, and, and driving a lot of that growth inside that vertical.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're constantly evolving our product, and, and I guess there's the innovation that it kind of occurs in a couple of different directions. I mean, one is in getting more advanced on our analytics and data sources, and being able to find deeper and more meaningful insights. Which is perhaps more your typical R&D, and we certainly focus on that. But but part of what I would call innovation is like industry and sector change. We don't come from a particularly technological, sort of technically savvy industry. They're not used to using data to make decisions. If I'm honest, very
0: slow on that because you're dealing with a lot of governments. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, So everyone's talking about data, but when you actually ask them to make data-led decisions, they go, "Well, I'd really just rather go with my assumptions (laughs) and and gut and what I've always done." So it's uh, the the other part of innovation, which is perhaps where I spend a lot of my time, is on perhaps market development or industry capacity development are really honing into some of the pain points around the way that they're doing things currently and getting people to think bigger about the opportunity of data and technology and bringing together you know different um, either you know customers or sector industry bodies and players to to just talk about and discuss some of these things so for example in May we're running a master class on data-led decision making post-COVID and we, we do a lot of strategies like that, which I feel is an innovation in the sense of where we're trying to change mindsets and behaviours of our customers to help them do their jobs better ultimately, but it does help sort of build market opportunity at the same time.
0: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I can only imagine that would probably take a little bit of time. Yeah, yeah. It's a
1: slow process. The system change doesn't happen quickly. But but actually what I am, ama- COVID has accelerated that by about 10 years. I, I'm actually, it's amazing. The conversations that we were having 12 years ago, I mean 12 years, 10, what am I saying? One year ago, 12 months ago <laughs> about, you know, data and cities and and i think everyone is in a much slower frame of mind and they're like oh that's interesting but maybe sometime and that has gone within six to 12 months from like i need all the information that you have what can you tell me because all of our assumptions about how places work and what we've thought for decades suddenly don't hold up anymore and people yeah. are curious and they actually want data and they're much more inspired and interested and so that behavioral shift has really been catalyzed in lots of ways by the pandemic
0: yeah huge yeah i mean it's, it's definitely propelled and in- and, and and to a certain degree i guess forced a lot of operations a lot of businesses to change right it was do or die right this is the way of the future um, yeah so i can only imagine that that would be it would be very similar for you as well so okay and more that, just on a on a not necessarily a personal level but where are you finding yourself right now as far as your core role within the within the business um, yeah as, as founders sometimes you know we find ourselves in a ceo role but that's not necessarily where the business needs us. And sometimes we're into innovation or, you know, culture. Where is your, I guess, where are you focused at the moment in in the business?
1: Yeah. So the way, so it's moved around a lot and it probably move around again. So currently the way that my business partner and I divide our responsibilities is that she is more inwardly leaning on team and culture operations and I'm more externally leaning on market development, strategy, business development, and innovation. Uh, obviously, we both work together on the key decisions there, but I spend a lot of my time, you know, and and the things that I think the founders should always do is thinking about like the next horizon, like we're going to do a capital raise next year, getting ready for what our business needs to be doing in order to get there. What's our second, third horizon after that? What problems are we solving? What did our product need to do? You know, so I, I certainly spend a lot of time looking at that. And then I also practically spend a lot of time on sales and BD just because we are still a young team. And so that's a good use of my time right now, but that is a role that I can see that I will step back from as we grow um, more, you know, step back from the coalface of that more as we grow.
0: Yeah. It's like what is what one of the strongest traits of a, of, a, of a founder is prediction. Being able to predict is where the market is going and how you can innovate or, or, or you know, keep up with the ever-changing landscape. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I totally agree with that. with That comment you made before that, you know, if you don't have your finger on the pulse and almost being like two, three, four, ten years in front, you will be left behind. because someone will come out of nowhere, right, a little dark horse, and we'll overtake. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's, it's critical. And I guess like on a day to day, you know, just a day, just from a day to day, like what really drives you? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning?
1: Yeah. I mean, on a daily basis, it's a lot of different things. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I get to work with an incredible team and I'm learning every day. I think because our company is changing so fast and because a lot of the um, things that we do internally as a company, like, data analytics and software engineering are not my background I have this incredible opportunity to work with brilliant people um, to solve problems in ways that I probably wouldn't solve them so I'm getting to learn every day and so that really motivates me working with really smart people to solve big problems and then I like the nature of my job in that I get to be involved with podcasts and public speaking and market generation and speaking to, um, to lots of different people and, again, sharing ideas and inspiration in different ways like that. Uh, and then I'm, I'm always constantly more broadly motivated by the purpose of our business, which, you know, ultimately success for us looks like creating better cities for people and our role in that is to provide better information so that de- decision-makers can make the right decisions that ultimately lead to better, you know, social and economic outcomes for cities. And so I do sort of hold that kind of North star, you know, broadly speaking, but on a day-to-day basis, when you've got 10 meetings and other things like that, I'm, I'm actually probably more inspired by the, the people that I get to work with and the, the practicalities of the problems that we get to solve every day. It's It's fun mostly
0: most of the time right (laughs) Um, and i I, would imagine that working with you know developers engineers data scientists and so on like they're 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 an interesting breed right because they are super 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 smart they Typically are on a completely different level. I always like go back to Elon Musk. I mean, that guy is, is not even human, right? He's from a completely yeah. different planet. Actually um, a robot. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, he thinks we live in a simulator anyway, you know, whenever we go there. So dealing with those types of individuals is is a challenge, right? I mean, yeah. I personally have found it very challenging in my business when I'm dealing with, you know, developers uh, and 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 data analysts. And then on the other side, I'm dealing with, you know, social. Uh, social media, um, yeah, uh, creative k- people, creative and- people, right? They're like polar opposites. Yeah. How do you, how do you deal with that? I mean, t- oh, seriously, I've found it very, very challenging to deal Yeah, able to it's do very with, like, challenging. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard. so hard.
1: Well, one thing that I found really interesting is, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge extrovert and I'm, I'm definitely a creative mind you know, designer by training, all those things. And now I work with mathematicians and data scientists. And, and, like uh, right right? I am so, I'm such a square peg in our own team, which is so weird, <laughs> but yeah. So, I, I mean, practically one example is, you know, I'm really keen to get everyone back to the office because that's what I love. And that motivates me, but he doesn't actually motivate or help our team do their best work. Um, Now there's obviously a balance there of staying connected with the team, but it's a really interesting question when you, when it comes to like the practicalities of, Do you work from home or work from anywhere or do you do you actually come back to working in the office full time? There's very, very different work styles and thinking styles that suit different things. On on the flip side, working from home for me is awful. Like when you're an extrovert, like and I am from working from home today, but when you yeah, it doesn't doesn't help me do my work. You
0: feed off people, right? You need you. Yeah, I need other people
1: for energy. But yeah, yeah, I think we try to I I think the way that we deal with that is everyone we we have an active dialogue about it so we everyone's done various forms of personality types strengths test and Myers-Briggs we a couple of times a year do facilitated sessions around learning about our strengths and communication styles based on our personality so good levels of shared awareness about how people like to communicate and work so that we can keep that in mind because some people like everything written down some people like to do everything out loud and and, and even just us having a shared language of like, oh, that's right, you're a J, like a planner on the um, Myers-Briggs. So I know that you're gonna need more information for me and I'm a P so I like to wing it, but I know that's gonna make you feel uncomfortable. So I'm gonna try harder to write stuff down. So just us having sort of some shared frameworks around thinking styles, strengths and personalities has given us some tools to be able to navigate those challenges, but I don't think it goes away because it is actually a clashing of work styles that you have to yeah. make work but trying to have a a very upfront conversation all the time about it has helped us.
0: I Love that we did something very similar uh, recently with disc profiling, right? Oh yeah. I'm like super, super high DI. Yeah, Um, so am I. (laughs) So they they literally call me like the persuasive bulldozer. And then (laughs) I've got on the other side is like, you know, very high CSs and it's like, you put us both into a room and we're polar officers, right? So we, we, typically will clash a lot, but understanding, I guess, everybody's behavioral styles allows us to kind of take a step back and go, all right, I know I'm dealing with the CS. I know they need data. I know they need time to think over the decision where I'm like, let's just go. I'll figure it out later. You know, I think it definitely helps. And and I I highly recommend it for any business that wants to, I guess, understand the team better and and know why this, you know, when there are clashes, why the clashes happen. And it's not that, you know, they don't like each other. It's just that they're very different people. Right? Yeah, they need to, to be able to make decisions and, and, yeah, and I guess get through the, 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 the workday. That's
1: exactly. right. And I think I've, another um, strategy that I've learned there with this team particularly is that I often need an integrator or a translator. So, and it's not that I can't, I mean, I've done a lot of, I've done a lot of courses and learning about coding and data analytics. So it's not that I don't know what they're doing and it's not that they don't know what I'm doing, but we actually don't have the same mental models or frameworks of how you solve problems to have a really productive conversation. And there are people in our team who can do that. And so I just know that if I've got a really tricky conversation to have or a really tricky problem to solve. I'll just make sure that I've got the right mix of people in the room. Otherwise, it might just be that we're just talking across each other and can't understand each other, even though we actually do fund, you know, on a fundamental level, understand each other. So that's been really helpful as well, having kind of integrators in our team.
0: Everyone's saying the same thing and trying to get the same outcome. It's just the way that they get there and the way they communicate is different. That's right, yeah. Um, yeah interesting yeah it's, but it's, on the so, whole yeah, working so, with so technical people
1: yeah was gonna say on the whole i find working with technical people much easier than working with creative people i <laughs> just
0: <laughs> i agree i agree because creative <laughs> is very subjective and we you know typically they change your mind a million times right <laughs>
1: yeah yeah um, it's done or it's not or you know it's great
0: <laughs> data or developers they're like like this is it right this is the way it needs to this is the way it needs to be built or this is the way it needs to be communicated so yeah they, mm. they are much better to, to deal with okay what's on the horizon Where's Navalytics going? Where you know, yeah. the, what does the roadmap look like over, say, 12 months to, to, to say three years?
1: That's right. So we're in a big transition right now where our data has historically been available on demand for customers. So they they buy one, two, three neighborhoods at a time. We are shifting from, from next month to a subscription platform where you subscribe to a much wider database of neighborhoods. Now the opportunity there is in rather than just seeing. Melbourne, Footscray, whatever it is, you're actually seeing your neighbourhood in the context of hundreds of others and you're able to benchmark and compare and see the trends and patterns and make much better decisions. It's always been our goal to do that, but the database architecture needed to power a platform like that was very complex. It took us a while to kind of get there from a technical perspective. So our immediate next horizon is moving formally into a subscription SaaS business model, which is again, different from what we've done before, which is still from an analytics perspective, similar, but from it's on-demand purchasing rather than subscription purchasing. We are then working towards a major funding round in 2022 and the purpose of that is really to um, press the accelerator high on scaling. So we already have a very broad footprint working with most of the sort of the major brands in in property and government and we have um, major customers in other countries as well because our platform works globally. But we really want to spend this year honing the product model for high-growth sales, which will be the, um, the objective after the, the, the funding round. But for us being at scale means a lot not for us to necessarily be in a big company but it helps our customers make much better decisions one of the challenges with any kind of measurement of our behavior and lifestyle is there's no ruler there's no standards there's it's not like sustainability or others where there's lots of frameworks and standards it's there's lots of different ways of measuring things and it means it's really hard to actually see progress or actually understand if you're making a good decision or not so if everyone's singing from the same song sheet and then there's a shared understanding about how places are measured and also the capacity to see different geographies and compare different cities around the world and how they're going. The platform becomes much, much more useful for our customers as well. It helps them make better decisions. And so we are looking to be in 100 cities within three years from a data footprint perspective. Um, and that's looking really achievable at this point in time.
0: That's the big <laughs> Yeah. The big hero, audacious right. goal. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And I, I guess lastly, like what's your biggest piece of advice that you can get someone now that, Is either getting into the tech space or even just getting into business in general
1: Mm, in the tech space i would really strongly advise people who are non-technical founders to give it a go because i didn't for like a decade because i just assumed that because i wasn't a computer scientist that i couldn't run that kind of business which is a really false assumption i actually think non-technical founders make some of the best founders because they're able to be real experts in the domain problem that they're trying to solve and they're looking to collaborate with technical people rather than being the people who actually creating the technology themselves so yes. i'd encourage lots of people who've perhaps thought of themselves as being adjacent to your outside of tech to fully get in there and because there's so much opportunity and then in business in general i think it's probably just similar advice on i think if you try and work out what it's actually like you probably will never start and so I, I think it's it's like you can't turn a parked car. Um, you've actually got to be driving before you can steer and even know which direction to go. So I, I think it's about sort of taking those first steps and getting started is, is the best way, even if you're really not sure if your idea is good enough or any of those things that kind of kind of mentally hold us back. I think those first few steps an- are an- critical. Cool.
0: Analysis by paralysis, right? You can overanalyze and get nowhere. Or you can yeah. just take a leap of faith and just start and, 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 and make it happen. Yeah, that's um, right. Lucinda, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Uh, it's been it's been some really good uh, I mean those last two tips I mean I totally agree with. I love the journey that you're on and I, I look forward to seeing where the platform, where you take the platform. And good luck we yeah, hundred cities, that's a big one. Yeah.
1: <laughs> We're excited.
0: <laughs> <laughs> awesome Lastly How do we How do we find you Where do you spend A lot of your time Are you LinkedIn Are you, are you Yeah I'm very
1: active On LinkedIn um, okay. Just to Hartley Or neighborlytics uh, You can follow me On Twitter At the same handle Or neighborlytics.com Is our company website
0: Awesome We'll put that in the comments below um, And thank you again
1: Thanks very much For having me